I'm very excited to have Fran Borg-Wheeler with me today. Fran is the former CEO of Youth Concern, a charity taking care of disadvantaged and vulnerable people. Fran is the founder of Heart-Centered Leadership and spends her time now designing training courses, facilitating and running training courses and being a coach. Welcome, Fran. Thank you very much, Talita. Lovely to be here with you. So Fran, you know I'm doing these interviews about what makes a great leader and the leadership hypothesis. But before we start, would you like to just tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm Fran and until very recently, I was the CEO of a small charity called Youth Concern. And um, prior to that, I had worked in several different um, third sector organizations mainly with delivery roles and um, over the last few years I'd set myself quite an ambitious target which was to try and raise a million pounds to set up a new project for a youth homeless supported project and um, this led me to push myself and develop in different aspects of leadership that I don't think I even knew existed <laughs> um, so um, in February, I stepped down and I, I thought it was a good time to go. I'd been there 13 years and I wanted to set up my own business, which is now called Heart Centred Leaders. And I want to have an impact on more people um, through the work I do, which is currently coaching both leaders and business people, consultancy for charities around four pillars fundraising well-being leadership and culture and I also do some training fantastic Fran I love that you pushed yourself out of your comfort zone with your new project and pushed to reach new levels that you hadn't before thank you very much was it very challenging to raise a million pounds yes especially as our charity we only had two hundred thousand pound a year turnover income actually so it was ambitious and it really um, meant that I had to dig deep into my resourcefulness and creativity um, it was it was it was an interesting fun journey it sounds like an amazing journey yes. so Fran, let's get into the leadership hypothesis what would you say makes a great leader I think the number one attribute has to be emotional intelligence. Um, I, I think the traditional brain-led strength, such as um, using your logic and reason and processes and strategy are all very important. But unless you combine those with emotional intelligence, soft skills like empathy, connection, compassion, and integrity, then I, I don't think you can be a great leader. I always say um, that self-awareness is like the entry ticket into leadership, because if you don't understand yourself, it's very hard to understand others. And of course, self-awareness is a subset of emotional intelligence. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, we, we still come across leaders, don't we, where um, they're, they're quite focused on trying to understand their colleagues and their clients, but sometimes 
um, don't necessarily schedule enough time for self-reflection. And as you said, really getting to know what makes themselves tick, what motivates themselves, what their own needs are and where they need to grow and develop. Fantastic. Um, in your opinion, what is the key to unlocking leadership potential from an individual's perspective? Mm. Apart from emotional intelligence. So I think um, it's really important to find a vision that is bigger than yourself or your ego, because uh, it's always um, there's always an element of uh, significance in in being a leader. But actually, when we come across obstacles, or barriers to um, progress, you know, we really need something that we can dig down and and refine our motivation by having a purpose and a vision that is uh, more important than our own um, interest. And would you say, I think in the sector that you work, that's a little bit easier to do than it is, for instance, um, let's say I work a lot with finance leaders and in finance mm. teams, it's, it's difficult to talk about what the company purpose is, but I suppose one can give your team a purpose. So I found giving your team a purpose one of the real fundamentals to unlock engagement. So when I was working with my teams, I wouldn't say we're there to do the finances or there to no. do the financial statements or there to do the monthly management accounts. We had a purpose that we were there to enable the business. And um, so one of the first purposes that I worked on with one of my teams was to become enablers of the business. And then later we, we refined it and came up with a, a better one. But we also found that finance professionals aren't very good at leading um, and developing mm -hmm. teams. So one of the other things was that they were actually the developers of people because mm. they needed to develop other, other people as well, other people in mm. the business to mm. understand finance. And of course, they had to develop their own people if they were leaders to be the next generation of business leaders. So I think you touch on a very important point with purpose. Yes, you're absolutely right, Talita. If you're working for a charity, then finding a vision is relatively easy. But the two examples you gave were excellent. Um, and if you are, for example, a finance leader or a corporate leader, then you know, even if your vision is to become an inspiring leader to your team or to empower your team to deliver the best service or product that they can, again, you're finding yourself a vision that's bigger than yourself. That's a great example. Um, I always remember uh, Sam Collins uh, many years ago. She, and you, I know you also know her. I was at one of her leadership development seminars and she asked us to describe what our leadership purpose was. And that's also very telling when you have to describe what your leadership purpose is. Mm -hmm. And as a finance professional, I'd never thought before that day, this is probably, mm -hmm. like, I think, 12, 13 years ago, I'd never thought about what my leadership purpose is before that day. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. And how many years had you been a leader? Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd already been there? a leader for probably already 10 years by that time. And, and I think these, you know, the kind of conversations you're having right now, are exactly the kind of conversations that are going to stimulate, you know, true professional growth, aren't they? Because they're not included in the traditional um, teachings around leadership, which I think is a real shame. We need to change that. 
definitely, definitely. And which is why I'm, I'm doing these. You're totally right. So as a CEO, Fran, could you explain to us how important the interaction is with the team and with other individuals? It is of ultimate importance because it's the key to building relationships. And um, if you have trusting relationships with your staff and your stakeholders, then you can create so much more together. Also, your interactions will will tell the staff and the stakeholders to what extent you care. And also, you will be able to demonstrate that you can listen and that you value their views, their opinions, and their input. Great. Um, What do you see sometimes holds uh, leaders back from reaching their true potential? Mm, It's a great question. Um, I think I might have answered it differently five years ago. (laughs) But um, I now think that what holds leaders back to points I'd like to make. One is a lack of um, understanding about self-care, boundaries, limitations. And the other element, I think, is a lack of um, really good mentors and people um, around them who inspire them as leaders. So it's that uh, having someone who's inspiring you and then you also grow to become this better leader. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think we all as leaders need to be taking a proactive approach to look for other leaders who inspire us and who have qualities that we would like to aspire to having. Yes, that's very interesting. You're not the first person who said that. It's, um, I think one of my first interviewees mentioned that it's about finding role models for yourself, mm. Mm. Looking, looking up to other people and say, this is why they're inspiring me, and then mm. saying, oh, I love those qualities. How can I develop those qualities in myself? And then surrounding yes. you with leaders who can help you develop those qualities. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think, you know, the other element of self-care I didn't realize till I was in my mid forties that um, I actually had to take care of myself as well as um, all my team and my clients. And, and that if I didn't, then I would not be able to be as effective or successful in my role. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. Um, would you like to share a story ab- about self-care and just how important it is? Because I think it's very important for the audience. Well, actually, you mentioned um, Sam Collins, and it was at the beginning of 2016, I'd won a scholarship place on uh, her two-day event, Global Women's Leadership Conference. And um, we started uh, talking about self-care, and I was kind of thinking it was a bit of a waste of time. I didn't really understand why it was on this leadership uh, (laughs) syllabus. (laughs) Sort of wanted to rush on and then look at the more important topics. But we were, we were um, doing an interactive exercise over um, self-care and I burst out crying and um, I didn't realise how absolutely exhausted I was. I think I was quite near burnout. I had very high levels of caring responsibilities at home and um, my job was really demanding. And um, so at the end of the two days, we had to go away with a commitment 
And uh, I had to think of two. I know I couldn't just go with one. So one was to set up my youth homelessness project. And the other one was to learn to take really good care of myself. I'd already had one mini stroke. And, um, you know, I had sort of dismissed that as a possible migraine and it wasn't. And so I, I kind of started embarking on a journey to understand um, how to actually work far more effectively and far more successfully. I think I'd got so used to working in quite a stressed, pressured state that I thought that was normal. And, um, you know, I'm really pleased to say that it doesn't have to be that way. Obviously, we're going to get pockets of time where, you know, we might be facing a period where there's a huge amount of demand on us to get several things completed at one time. And uh, you might be in a crisis such as now where your workload is unexpectedly challenging and high. However, you know, I have learned a lot about how to pace myself and, um, you know, the quality of work that I can produce now as opposed to five years ago is a lot better as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would like to share just a couple of things with the audience because I, of course, had um, CFO roles for a big portion of my career. And a lot of the time, my calendar was extremely full with not even a moment's time to breathe. Mm. And um, people would follow me when I was going to lunch and say, can we talk? Mm. And they would join. Or And um, when I was... Um, at one stage, I was trying to walk 10,000 steps a day and I yeah. would say that's fine, but I have a 10 minute walk planned in over, you know, in my half an hour lunch break. And they would say, well, can I walk with you to talk, <laughs> to talk about whatever it was mm. that they wanted to do? So I also had quite a rigorous schedule and um, 12 hour to 12 to 14 hour days and some days mm. 16 hours. And I felt the self-care thing was also not something that I did particularly well. And I had a coach at the time, you know, uh, Gosha Gorner as well. And Mm -hmm. um, I would always run when I needed um, a bathroom break. And I would always run (laughs) to the ladies and run back. And she was like, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. You walk like the queen. (laughs) She was like, when you're walking there, you have to pretend like you're the queen and breathe very deeply and take your time. And Mm -hmm. I started to do that. And it was, honestly, Mm -hmm. maybe it didn't take me two minutes. It took me now Mm. five minutes, but those Mm. five minutes were almost like a a reprieve because I really took the time to walk more mindfully. I think it would be a Mm -hmm. mindful practice if one had to ask the specialists. Of course, at the time I didn't know that. And it was just being more mindful of this is now my time to breathe, to Mm. relax, to walk there, to go do something, come back, and then I'll regain my concentration. And actually, once I had practiced that um, for a couple of weeks, I actually felt a lot better just because Mm. of that absolute concentration on something that wasn't work. Because I think before I just, the 12 hours at work, I just absolutely did not switch off. But those um, maybe every hour, hour and a half, when I just had that five minutes where I very consciously Mm. tried to disconnect from work helped tremendously. Yes, it doesn't have to take a lot of time, does it? It, It's just having the intention, as you said, to take a couple of minutes where you disconnect and allow yourself to focus on your body, usually, um, and then recharge and refocus. So I always give that tip because we all need the Mm. body breaks. So it's a great time to just think about 
yourself, your body, and not just focus on and and very aggressively push the work thoughts away. Mm, yes, just to spend time thinking about your own body. Mm-hmm. Good tip. Thank you. <laughs> so, Fran, do you want to tell us a story about either great leadership or perhaps an epic fail? Hmm. So, I mean, this might not be an obvious uh, example of great leadership, but I do remember when I was in my mid-twenties and um, I had depression and anxiety and um, I I was still going to work and uh, trying to do a decent job. And there came a time where I was prescribed medication and um, I, was, I was quite unwell. And I went to talk to my manager and I was very nervous about it. And um, I didn't know quite whether she'd asked me to stay at home or whether she'd see me as incompetent. And um, I built up quite a, a level of anxiety about telling her. And um, her name was Judith, I remember. And she um, was very calm when she listened to what I had to say. And when I'd finished, she just said to me, I trust you to tell me what you can and cannot do. She said, and um, if you ever need support, I'm here to listen. And that is all she said. And it really gave me such a great example of how to support somebody who's struggling in the workplace. And, you know, I've come across many instances since um, where people perhaps have you know, um, a situation going on at home where perhaps there's been a bereavement or um, a marriage in difficulty, um, or they have been experiencing, you know, a mental health issue and have come to talk to me. And I always remember her words and, and how it made me feel really supported, valued and trusted. So that would be my example of great leadership. Yes, just focusing on that individual and focusing on them being able to come and tell you when they need you. You know, there's um, absolutely, there's um, a theory that states that we are all doing the best with the resources that we have at any time. And I think that is the message she gave to me. She trusted me that I had enough integrity and intelligence to work out what I could and couldn't do. and. she knew that I would be doing the best I could. And I think when a manager or a leader shows that they have trust and faith in you, you want to do your best. You want to be loyal for them, don't you? And, um, you know, she really knew how to bring out the best in her team. I think that's empowerment 101, I think, that you are explaining there because she totally gave you the power to say what you needed and you mm-hmm. felt very trusted and valued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, we can, we can use that as an example for other aspects of leadership, can't we? You know, if there's a, if there's a difficult project and we can choose to either um, think of the solution and tell our staff how to do it, or we can um, enable them to put their heads together and um, use some creativity and perhaps come up with a better solution that we might have done ourselves. Yeah, I loved, I loved brainstorming with my team. So I love to generate really great ideas and think mm. about things that I might not have done before instead of saying, 
this is what I want. I really mm. like to say, what is the direction we need to go? And now let's brainstorm mm. how we can get there. Absolutely. I think, you know, we can become a little bit too directional, perhaps when we're short of time, <laughs> because we might think, you know, this needs to be done really quickly. And so perhaps we don't schedule the time to really explore other people's ideas. But we know, don't we, that if we do take that time, the end result and the process is going to be both more enjoyable and probably more successful at the end of the day. I think sometimes it's very counterintuitive because if you think I just get it done quickly, mm. um, sometimes that get it done quickly is not the right answer because you might miss things that you didn't consider and that the team did. So sometimes I would do that. And then as soon as I would speak to the team and say, we've discussed this as a board, they would come and say, but that won't work. And these mm-hmm. are the reasons why. And if yes. I had just taken the 10 minutes up front to rather have discussed it with them and asked their opinion, I would have found that out quicker. And now, you know, in that case, for instance, the board has already discussed it. You need to unwind where the board is is thinking about it. And so, so it just made it a lot more difficult. So I kind of realized relatively early in my career that it's better to ask the team first and sometimes just, or just bounce an idea off someone else because they think mm. about perspectives that we don't. And so that always um, straight from point A to point B with no detour asking anyone else might not be the right answer, especially the more senior you become. I, I found that, that more, the more senior you are, the more necessary it actually is to gather other, other opinions. Absolutely. We have a team for a reason, don't we? And I always used to describe it as a jigsaw. And, you know, we tried to have teams that were as diverse as possible so that we could draw upon different people's skills and experience and perspectives. We don't just want the leader's view. You want to be able to incorporate as much um, knowledge and ideas as you can. Yeah, sometimes think that is the problem with some of the strategy uh, definition sessions that I've been in. Um, sometimes the board has like a two-day away and we design a strategy and we don't really ask the people. And then later when we ask the people, we understand that that is not really a great idea for many different reasons. And then sometimes you feel because you've already gone such a road down the strategy development that you can't unwind that anymore. So I always um, suggest to my clients to have other people around strategy development, even if you have like a troubleshooting team with you that's helping you um, just um, to think about and critique what ideas you're coming up with, but in a, in a way where it's very constructive, that that really helps because otherwise strategy development can be very, very in isolation just from the top without thinking about really all this um, brilliance that's sitting at the bottom of an organization. I totally agree. I think it's very dangerous to solely rely on a trustee board to set the strategy. They are a step removed and for a very good reason certain areas of their roles that they have to consult with the people that are on the ground doing the job and also the clients Mm -hmm. um, because they will be the ones who know about the need know about um, how to resolve any challenges or provide the best service or product so Fran as a former CEO would you like to share your top leadership tips with us ah okay so I can share a couple of tips with you now yes absolutely um 
One of my favorites is something I call the three A's, which are that I believe a leader needs to be available, approachable, and accessible. And um, I, um, I read a newsletter from my daughter's school at the beginning of last year. And uh, the headmistress had written, as part of my open door policy, I will be available to get to know the students between 8.10 and 8.25 on a Monday morning. Now, school <laughs> opens at 8.30. And it really made me laugh because for me, that was completely the opposite to being available, accessible and approachable, setting the one time when nobody's going to be at school for only 15 minutes to try and get to know 600 students. So I think, um, you know, being available means that however busy you are, um, you don't have to speak to your member of staff right now, but you have to be prepared to say, you know, is it important? If the answer is yes, I'm just in the middle of this, but as soon as I've finished, I will come back to you. Um, being approachable, once you are there listening, you really need to be in the present. You, you may have 10 other things that you need to be doing, but in that moment, you need to give your full attention to the person you're talking to and set aside everything else. And accessible. So, you know, part of my uh, role as CEO meant that I had to work from home on certain days. So they, the staff or stakeholders couldn't necessarily uh, find me physically, but they would all know that if there was something important, for example, a safeguarding incident or something had cropped up in, in terms of reputation or a member of staff had an issue that needed to be urgently resolved, that they could text me and I would always, within probably 15 minutes, get back to them and tell them when I could speak to them. So you don't have to be face to face, but you, and if it isn't yourself that needs to be that person to respond, that's okay, as long as your staff know who they can go to. So that's the first tip, the three A's. My second tip is that, um, you know, ignorance can sometimes be a virtue as a leader. Really, you do not need to pretend that you understand or know how to do everything. I think I made that mistake in my first couple of years. I felt the expectation was on me to be able to do everything, mm -hmm. which may sound silly to some of you listening. But um, what I learned over the years was that actually um, a better approach was to um, become more aware of the areas that I was good at, to also look at the areas where I was not so good, and then to find other people who both liked the areas that I wasn't so good at and could do that um, area of the job far more effectively than I could. And, you know, in, in, in looking at your team and trying to uncover their potential, um, you're also helping them develop and you're giving them the recognition for um, an area of work that perhaps they hadn't been involved in before. So, yes, I, I think it's a mistake for leaders to try and do everything themselves or pretend that they can, you know, excel at every area of um, the role. Fantastic. I definitely, one of my other interviews say, interviewees said he was, a, he is a super delegator. And I think that's, there we go. that's actually quite a good way to set out um, 
maybe not in the early days when you were a leader because one still struggles mm. a lot with that letting go of the control. Mm-hmm. I think it's whether you're control-focused or empowerment-focused. Mm-hmm. And the empowerment-focused mm-hmm. is how much can I delegate and then just mm. direct and coach to be able to mm. do that. So fantastic mm. examples. Thank you so much, Fran. You're very welcome. So, Fran, would you like to share maybe something around an epic fail in leadership that you've you've noticed or something that we should watch out for as leaders? Yes. Well, I, I think uh, especially with um, current world events, highlighting um, high levels of discrimination um, in the world, in particular racial discrimination, it, it brought my thoughts to um, situations that are similar within the workplace. And, um, you know, I, I experienced this on a, a lower level when I had a boss who um, was bullying me. And um, he would just use tactics like screaming down the phone at me and um, trying to pull rank, um, but in a very unprofessional way. And I, I think he was... Um, he was very afraid of giving away any control. He'd hired me as CEO, but um, didn't want to um, let go of any of the control. It was really unpleasant. And I would come away from conversations feeling very shaken and quite upset. And, um, but, but, but since then, um, you know, I, I have spotted other leaders who will either unconsciously um, be displaying discrimination, perhaps towards women, perhaps towards younger members of the team, um, and and perhaps um, towards somebody who may have a learning difficulty or may come from a certain ethnic background. But, um, you know, I think as leaders, and that's not just people who have the title of leader, but all of us as colleagues and managers need to be ready and brave enough to stand up and speak out when we see any forms of discrimination in the workplace. Um, You know, it's not okay for us to realise that our colleague or perhaps ourselves have some unconscious bias or prejudice against a certain group or an individual and not do anything about it. You know, we have to challenge the status quo now and really strive to be um, better role models. Um, and, 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 you know, we want to give hope to the, to the next generation. We can't continue pe- perpetuating the discrimination that exists currently in our country and around the world. I would totally agree with you. And I think there are two things in there that are really important for me. So I um, am a member of the Institute of Directors and I also tutor their leadership. And as a board director, we all will have biases, but it's Mm. not good enough just to say, oh, I know what my biases are. We actually Mm. have to actively work against our biases. So, you know, shine a light on them and then work against how do we change that? How do we turn that around? And I think a lot of hiring practices are suitable to attracting um, equal opportunities for people yes. because we're hiring mm. from the wrong pools. And so I think all of those things are things that we need to consider um, mm. as directors, um, as CEOs, or just as people aspiring to be good, great leaders. 
And the, the second thing in there for me is really very much around when something happens in a room where we are and actually it's a bit borderline or it's, it's um, tacitly we're starting to agree with something. And you mm. is one of those things that's very often used in a derogatory way. I think it's time to call it out and to say that's not okay. And, yes. you know, to be brave because it might not be directed at us. It might be directed at someone else. I was once on a board of directors where everyone did not have the same social uh, sexual orientation. And um, mm. some of the directors would make very inappropriate jokes. And, mm. you know, knowing, I don't know if everyone knew what everyone, you know, what the orientation mm. was, but it was just not okay. And so I would very often call out the jokes and say, you know, I don't think that's okay. Um, mm. or laugh at all. Mm -hmm. Because I think the minute you start to laugh at jokes like that, you are, yes. you know, whether Colluding. you know or don't know, um, mm. you know, preferences in the room, it's just not okay. No. That's right. I think, you know, your, your, your point about equal opportunities, we know that we live in a society where equal opportunity does not exist. And as leaders, we have a duty to ask ourselves, how can we try to redress that imbalance? And that needs to be a um, frequent question, not a one-off. I think your point about recruitment is extremely important. You know, if we look at the, the top echelon of leaders, um, there's not um, equal representation, proportionate representation from BME communities, from women. Um, and we need to keep, you know, there's been some progress, but we, we must not get complacent. We must keep moving forward um, to create the kind of, uh, you know, uh, work environment that we want to be part of. What I'm quite passionate about is thinking about, uh, you know, you worked with vulnerable people um, as youths who might not have the same opportunities that other people have. And mm. if no one ever gives them a chance to enter um, leadership positions or work in leadership positions, I mean, that would be a real sad state for me, you know, because I think that's one of the things is to, to uplift people, help people grow beyond um, maybe the circumstances that they had when they were growing. Mm. And so that's very, very important for me that we also think about demographics of, you know, mm. how we as um, board leaders, CEOs, uh, how we can support different hiring practices to make sure that we do give people who might not have the chance, the chance to do that. And if we're only ever uh, recruiting from uh, Ivy League schools or prep schools, mm -hmm. we will never mm -hmm. get there. And sometimes it's all about attitude. It's not about the having the best results and coming from mm -hmm. Absolutely. You touched on a really important point there. And there's so much untapped potential in particular the group you mentioned you know young people with disadvantages they may not have had the best education they may not have come from a family where there were aspirations to achieve anything more than what they're doing but you know working with hundreds of them as I did over the years I would see many young people and you could see there was there was so much more in them and it was such a privilege to be able to be in the position of being able to kind of coax that out of them. And I remember a young person saying to me, thank you, you made me th think that I was worth more than I thought I was. 
And, you know, I think that's very telling. A lot of these young people did not think they were worth very much or capable of very much. If you're prepared to put in the time and a little bit of support by mentoring some of these young people in the workplace, not only will you, will you help them turn into excellent employees, but you'll also create um, employees who are very loyal. Mm -hmm. And I would say to um, people who are in positions with leaders who are in positions with large corporates, think about who you're offering work experiences to. I know very often one offers work experience to uh, friends and family of employees mm. who are already there, but I would say, or within the company, I would say try to hook up with a couple of youth charities or things like mm -hmm. that in your mm -hmm. area who are trying to um, help develop um, bring out the potential in people who would not have had the opportunities. And sometimes that's worth far more in terms of just um, bringing out great leadership potential. Another group, um, as you were touching on young people, another group uh, where, you know, I would strongly urge employers to consider taking people on for work experience or trial periods would be people who've got criminal records. I worked in probation for a while and, you know, there would be a lot of um, young men in particular who'd come out of prison and uh, so motivated to get their life back on track and uh, pick up from where they'd left off and nobody would employ them. And uh, there was a very interesting project I came across that was a mentoring project working in a prison and they, they found out that um, where... Um, these young men had been mentored a couple of months before release and then a couple of months after release, it reduced the reoffending rate from 64% nationally to 17%. So that bit of support for perhaps six months. And of course, this includes um, employers who are willing to give these people a chance. There are a few employers who are really well known for doing this successfully. I think Timpsons is one yes. of them, the key um, employers. They've got some really good stories, but yeah. Yeah, so I think just widening our perspective a little bit as leaders mm. is a mm. really is a really good thing to, to do here. I know yes. it's an amazing charity. Well, it's not a charity. It's two social entrepreneurs. I think the, the emergence of social entrepreneurship is also amazing. It's mm. two women who have a coffee shop in the center of London and it's mm. actually a bakery coffee, coffee shop and mm. they take female offenders and mm. they give them a new lease on life by teaching mm. them how to bake and how to yep. be able to um, sustain their own lives by baking and, you know, giving them a second mm. chance mm. by mm. creating small businesses and they actually mm -hmm. um, use the ladies to help bake for their, for their coffee shop, come mm. bakery. So a really great, great story there of social interaction mm. as well. Mm. So thank mm -hmm. you for bringing that out, Fran. So Fran, as a final question, is there anything that you wish people would ask you that they don't? Mm. What a good question. How about, would you like a glass of wine? <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah, so, so more the social aspect. So more understanding who you are, Fran, as a person, perhaps. than just Ooh, very good. Well, actually, on a more serious note, I think there's a question that we could all get in the habit of asking a little bit more when we meet people, which would be, how can I support you and how can you support me? 
In fact, it's a question you asked me before this interview. You're very good at it. But, um, you know, I'm, I try and get in the habit now when I meet people, when we've had a conversation to say, is there any way that I can support you? Mm-hmm. And also it's great if other people ask me the same. So I think that way we are focusing more on um, collaboration, cooperation, rather than competition. And I think we can all achieve so much more if we're working together. I think that's a great example, Fran. And I even think in corporate life, um, as an entrepreneur, I ask that question quite a lot. Um, you said I, I, stu- I asked you that before we started the interview. That's right. But I think if I were to go back to corporate life now, I might ask my people more often, mm. how can I support you? Yes. Because I do yes. think it's a very, very important question to ask. It, it really is. And, you know, I think I've just been writing a uh, module, actually, for a charity management training course. And one of the sections was on how to be an outstanding leader and one of my points was about making sure that your staff have the resources and the support they need to do their job to the best of their ability and you know some staff won't speak up will they there there, there is an imbalance between some people's roles and and leaders so we really do need to get in the habit of saying how can I support you to do your job to the best of your ability definitely definitely Fran, it's been wonderful to interview you. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. It's been lovely to have a conversation with you. Thank you, Fran. Take care.